Well, we are really, really glad you're here. Now, when Greg was up here doing the introduction and welcome you all here, he referenced our Connect card right there in your uh, cup holder when you came in. You also, by the way, got a commitment card. This is for people who call Four Corners home, who this is your church. This is the tool we use to communicate how we're going to support the thing I was just talking about on that video. So if this is your home and you want to help us, this is how you communicate. Now, some of you have asked, Ben, what are we doing this year about our Christmas gift? Now, if you're a Four Corners regular, you know that around here every year for several years, we've raised a ton of money and sent it outside our doors to help some ministry around the world. We've dug wells in Uganda, and today people have fresh water because of what we've done. We helped build a hospital in the bush in Africa, a birthing center, literally, so that kids could be born healthily into the world. We built a church last year in India. This year, what we're doing as a part of Build Lives, when you give to this, you're giving to this project I'm talking about right now. We are supporting at least two orphanages, and we're looking at a third right now. We're supporting right now our orphanage in Kerala, India, where we built the church. Pastor James John, we're going to be adding an addition to his orphanage so that they can house more girls and they can have more of what they need to minister to these girls in a place where, honestly, without Pastor James and his team there, there would be little hope for the quality of life they would have. In addition to that, we're buying them all brand new mattresses. Now, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal to you, maybe. I don't know if it does or not, but that's kind of a luxury item over there. And right now, many of them lay on cots or on blankets folded up, and we're going to be buying them all mattresses. That's our gift from this church outside of our doors to help them. And then in addition to that, we're going to be partnering with the Smoky Mountain Children's Home. That's, it's right there in Pigeon Forge. You've probably driven by it and haven't even noticed it on your way to Gatlinburg. And we're going to be partnering with them. And next week, if you're here, I'm going to show you pictures and exactly where and how our dollars are going to be spent. So when you give to Build Lives, you're giving to those projects. And if the money comes in between now and Christmas Eve Eve, we will be writing those checks the first week of 2012 and getting that money. Our hope is at the absolute latest that they get our money by Easter. So please... This year, we're asking you to set aside a sum of money and give the cash to build lives. And our family, the way we do it, we've done it every year. We take the most expensive gift we're going to buy, and we give at least that much money to build lives. That's how we do it. I don't know how you need to do it, but for us and our family, it's making sure that we give to more than just us. We want to give to something bigger. And that's exactly why instead of just taking all the dollars and we could use every dollar, friends, to build out this facility, we're setting aside a portion of our money first to give to God's work outside of us because we believe it's a biblical principle. When you put God's things first, the rest is blessed. That's why my family and I tithe. We give our first money to God and we believe he blesses the rest. You watch our lives. You just look, look at us. If you want to make an appointment with me, sit down and I'll share with you how our 90% in our family goes much further than our 100% ever went. And I know the skeptic in the room, you don't believe me, but let me just take an hour. You buy me lunch because I'm cheap. And I'll share with you the story of how God has blessed our family. All right, so this is our tool, Build Lives Commitment Card right there. Now I want to ask you a couple questions, all right? How many of you were in kids, this is church confession time, right? How many of you, when you were kids and Christmas was nearing, you couldn't wait for the day to arrive. You were so excited and your parents would go out Christmas shopping and you knew they were buying gifts. Like you knew that there were gifts somewhere in your house. And by a show of hands right now, how many of you went looking for Christmas gifts in your house as a kid? All right, good. Good, put your hands down. Yeah, that's good. You guys are bad kids. I tell you, right? How how many of you here, 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 how many of you, found the gifts. Go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's good. Good. My wife, when she was a little girl, her parents went out for a few hours. She got under the tree, unwrapped the gifts very carefully, looked at every single one, and gently wrapped them all back up. That's my wife. She's a pretty good girl, but 
But at that moment, it was like her, 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 the worst moment of her life. She was just a bad kid at that moment. So sorry, honey, I, I outed you right here in public. Look, I don't know, but like even now, my kids are so excited. They cannot wait for Christmas. We got the Christmas list like a month ago. It's been altered a hundred times. In fact, just this morning, my son's to me, dad, I've been thinking again. I don't think I want that. I want... But they can't wait. They're so excited. If Christmas is about anything, it's about the excitement and the hope that we have in things. For kids, it's, it's about little things, really things that maybe don't matter that much in terms of their physical value, but it really is about something much bigger than that, that those presents represent in small form. It's about a hope that is grand and big and huge. It's a hope that's connected to God's purpose for this earth. And it's a hope that's connected to God's purpose for you today, like right now in this place and for the rest of your life. I want to take you to a place in your Bible today that for me is the beginning proper, I guess, of the hope of Christmas. Before we do that, though, I want to ask you one more question. What is, what is your favorite Christmas song? Like mine is, Grandma Got Ran Over by a Reindeer, and uh, I'm from Tennessee. That just kind of goes with my heritage there. No, I'm kidding. My Mine is, is really, it's Oh Holy Night. That's, that's my favorite. What's yours? Would you do this? Would you take five seconds, turn to the person next to you, and share with them, like, what your favorite Christmas carol is, and then give them a moment to share with you. Go ahead. Take just a second. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. I've heard a lot just kind of, you know, rebounding up here, you know, you know eardrums, eardrums. I can hear a lot of different things. We're going to do every one of your favorite songs at our Christmas Eve Eve service. It's going to last three hours. No, I'm teasing. We're going to do a lot of your favorite songs at our Christmas Eve Eve service. Make sure you set out December 23rd and come be with us at our Christmas Eve Eve service. Greg will tell you more about that, but I want to take you to the song, O Holy Night, for just a second. This song in English comes to us from a French poem written in about the mid-1800s, and it was translated a few years later into English. In fact, there are multiple renderings of the French to English, multiple translations. The one we have most famous is the one that you'll see mostly written down, the one that we'll sing here, I'm sure, over the next few weeks. I want to take you to a line in that song. It's on the screen behind me from the first verse, all right? This is not our text. Our text comes from the Bible. But this song illustrates in very common language some of the principles we're going to talk about today. Here's what it says. Oh, holy night. Now, you know what night we're talking about, right? It's the night that Jesus was born. It says the stars are brightly shining. It's the night of our dear Savior's birth. Then here it kind of gets poetic, all right? So long lay the world in sin and error pining. We don't use the word pining that often, but it it means longing, Long lay the world waiting, anticipating, with hope, with an anxiousness. In the middle of their sin, in the middle of their brokenness, in the middle of their error, till he appeared. And then here's like my favorite part of the song. Till the soul felt its worth. Can I tell you something? One of the reasons why I'm so excited to be helping helping these orphanages is, is that I know that for a lot of kids, they don't get the fortune of growing up in a home like I did or maybe you did. Maybe this isn't your story, but for me, I had parents who loved me, who wanted me, who did what they could to invest in me. They took the cards that they were dealt, they played their best hand possible, and they invested in my life so that I would know something about myself and I would know something about my God. And what I knew about my God and myself would impact my life. And I know that there are a lot of folks who don't know this. They are stuck 
in a world that tells them all kinds of things about themselves, about where their worth really comes from. It tells young little girls that your worth comes from how you can make another person happy with your body. It tells young men that your worth comes from how your peers see you and define you, or it comes from your ability to make things with your hands, and so your intrinsic value and worth comes from what you can produce. There are all kinds of lies that circulate in this world. And Jesus came to this world to remind us that there is an intrinsic worth in each one of us. Our soul has worth. It means the world to God. It meant everything to him, so much so that he sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. Long lay the world waiting, anticipating in its brokenness, in its error, in its, in its wrong way of thinking. And then he appeared. And at that moment, the soul felt its worth. We're going to look at a classic Christmas story in just a second. But before I, got, I do that, I got to tell you like quickly, two or three snippets of people in your Bible in the New Testament, you can go there and read their stories, whose souls... <laughs> as they thought about themselves, as they thought about their existence on earth, the word worth and their life weren't put into the same sentence. I think very quickly about the man who was completely invalid and he had heard that Jesus was teaching in a nearby house and he wanted to go hear Jesus teach because he heard that when Jesus talked, he shared truth that would open up life to you and he couldn't get there. But he had four friends He may have had more, but at least four. Picked him up, picked up the cot he laid on and took him and tried to get into the house, but they couldn't get there because the crowd was so large. The Bible says that they took him and his cot up onto the roof. They began to pull back the matting. They dug through the roof. It would have been like a mud thatch kind of thing. They dug through the roof, throwing caution to the wind, not caring how much it cost. And they began to lower this guy to Jesus. And at some point, he... And Jesus locked eyes for the first time. And then Jesus said to him, you know, effectively, be healed. Your sins are forgiven. I'm correcting what's wrong with you, both physically and spiritually. And at that moment, his soul felt its worth. And everything was changed for him. And there was a woman caught in the act of adultery. In that day, punishable by death. And because There was a story going on outside of her that was a little bit bigger than her. She was trapped in a a situation where people are going to use her as an example to trap Jesus. So they pulled her out into the street and they wanted to stone her. Jesus puts an end to it. You may have heard this story. He says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he looks at the woman and he says, look, I don't condemn you. Go and don't live in this error anymore. Go and sin no more. And at that moment, her soul felt its worth. Your Bible is full of stories of people who were waiting, anticipating. Many of them didn't even know what they were waiting on. They had a hope. They anticipated. And there was a delay, a pining in their life. And then they had an encounter with Jesus that changed everything. It's the story of a lot of people in this room. Oh, the testimonies in this room are remarkable, honestly. Uh, this week, I read several testimonies from several of you as you've written them on your Connect card and as we've received them in connection with our Build Lives campaign. And we, we've heard, I've heard, and I've been reminded about what God is doing in this place. I want to take you back to a powerful story in your Bible where there was a young couple initially. They were young. 
And they begin to pray and ask God for some things in their lives, things that were meaningful and important and good. And the things they prayed for did not come. And they waited and they waited and they waited. This is the story of their pining, of their waiting. And it's the story of the moment when their souls felt its worth and everything was changed. It's found in your Bible in Luke chapter one. I'd like for you to go there if you have a Bible. If not, that's okay. I'm gonna be reading it slowly for you. The words will not be behind me on the screen. There's just so many of them and I wasn't sure how I was gonna pace myself. And so we're just gonna work through Luke chapter one there in your Bible, all right? So let, let me set you up just a little second. I don't know what you know about the story of Jesus, uh, but, but, but Jesus was born in a unique historical setting. A couple thousand years ago, in a little area called Galilee, a little small subsection of a larger country we call Israel, very much the land of Israel we talk about today. He was born in a time of Roman occupation of Israel. And that Roman occupation meant all kinds of things. It meant that that, that little country of Israel had no real political clout. It meant that they had no real self-determination. There was no sense of sovereignty in that nation. Their national identity was covered over, shadowed over by the power and might of the emperor. It meant that even the uh, local politicians who were set up were really just puppets of the state. They, they were literally in bed with Rome. And yet there was this national hope, literally, holding on to a promise that had been spoken 2,000 years earlier. And I don't mean 2,000 years from now. I mean 2,000 years from then, so 4,000 years ago. This little nation under the Roman occupational rule was holding on to a hope given to a guy by the name of Abraham. All the way back in your Bible in Genesis chapter 12, God came to Abraham and he says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm gonna do something powerful in your life. I'm gonna bless you. Now the word blessing gets used a lot. Like somebody sneezes, we say, bless you, right? Or if you're in the South and you see somebody who's like having a hard time, you go, oh, bless his heart. It's a way of saying, oh, and he's stupid. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of a southern, Southernism, you know. But, but the word bless, when God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, is something powerful. It means, I'm going to give you my favor. I'm going to do something powerful in your life. It's going to go beyond normal explanation, Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. But then like the, 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 the top of the promised Abraham, the, the absolute pinnacle was, he says, I'm going to, through you, Abraham, and through the nation I built through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. I'm going to send a person. I'm going to sit him up on a throne and he will rule this world. And prophets and priests and kings come later and they begin to unpack this promise and they begin to understand that God's gonna set up a kingdom on this world that's gonna surpass any kingdom. The king is gonna be stronger than any king. In fact, he's gonna be called the king of kings. It's a way in the Hebrew language of talking about the superb, superlative. It's, he's the kingliest. He's gonna be the Lord, but not just any Lord. He's gonna be the Lord of lords. He's gonna be the lordiest, if you will. He's gonna be at the top and Abraham received this promise and every generation that passed waited for the fulfillment of that promise. They waited in anticipation and hope. Every mother hoped that the child in her womb 
would be the one on whom the favor of God would rest, on whom the kingdom would begin. Along the path, God raised up certain people. He raised up Isaac, Abraham's son, and then Jacob. And the history takes them down to Egypt and a deliverer by the name of Moses and his brother, the priest, Aaron. And then they, they go out of Egypt into the promised land with a guy by the name of Joshua. And in just a matter of a few years, they have their very first king. And this is like the golden age. And everybody thinks, here it is. The promise is going to be fulfilled. And there's a guy by the name of David. He comes from nothing, from the shadows on the back part of the country to prominence sitting on a throne. And if you thought David was great when you looked at his son Solomon, unbelievable wisdom, untold riches. People from all over the world came. Everybody believed that in Solomon, the fulfillment must be met. The fulfillment of the promise is being met. And yet the story after Solomon gets dark again. It's clear that we had moments and brief interludes of blessing, but the full promise given to Abraham had not yet occurred. And every child born, every person looked at that child and said, I wonder if he will be the one. At that time, honestly, women were considered... This is like, in that time, don't throw stones. It's not my political opinion, right? But women in those times, they were like baby-making machines. That was the idea. And their worth, in the culture at least, was attached to whether or not they could have children. And so women would pray, and they would say, God, would you, would you be so kind as to bless me with a child? And would you be so kind as to allow me to be the mother of the one? And hundreds of years passed without the promise being fulfilled. Prayer after prayer being prayed and seemingly unanswered. And then you come in your Bible to the book of Luke. There are four Bible books that tell the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark and John don't really give as much of a Christmas story. Matthew and Luke do. Matthew starts with the genealogy, which is very Jewish. It tells the background of Jesus and establishes that Jesus is connected to David in his roots. That's a big deal because everybody knew at this point, given the words of the prophets, that the promise would be fulfilled from somebody who's descended from David. But Luke begins somewhere else. Luke begins with a common everyday story, or at least that's where it starts. The story of a couple who are pining and waiting and hoping and anticipating. It's a story of a, a family very much involved in church. It's a story of, well, Elizabeth, a mom, and her husband, a priest. And here's how it begins in Luke chapter 1. And the time of Herod, king of Judea, our Bible says, in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Luke, Herod was the king set up as a puppet under the authority of Rome. There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. There were 23 divisions of priests. He belongs to one of them. And his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother. This means they both come from a priestly family. Heritage uh, for generations past. They were preacher's kids, if you will. And they knew the things of God. They understood, you know, the way of God. At least they had a knowledge of it. And both of them were, now listen to the words described by these people, uh, uh, how these people are described. Both of them were upright in the sight of God. That simply means they walked the way they're supposed to. Their words and their heart matched. They weren't hypocritical. They observed all the Lord's commandments and regularly, uh, all the commandments and regulations, and they were blameless before God. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren 
and they were both well along in years. We don't know exactly what well along in years, but they were by this point older and they hadn't been blessed with children. Their prayers to God give me a child weren't, weren't answered in the way that, that they had hoped. I mean, I imagine when they got married, they were like every young couple, every mother thinking, God, I just, I just want to have children. In fact, in that day, it was even a bigger deal because without understanding all the medical stuff that we fully understand today, first of all, if you couldn't have kids, the woman was always blamed. Again, they just didn't understand what we understand fully. So it, the weight of this burden was really on Elizabeth. <laughs> and then on top of that, in that day, if you couldn't have a baby, it was almost seen like a curse from God. They didn't, you know, they didn't really think about it beyond anything beyond that, because if God's favor was upon you, then you must, you know, you must be able to have kids. You must have somehow be connected to the promise of Abraham. And if not, your kid was not like the one, maybe he'd be connected to the one through some division or through some participation. And if you couldn't have a child at all, then you're somehow really disconnected from the promise. And they lived with the burden of this and with the social shame that came upon it much more than exists today. And they were older in years. So they had prayed through their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s, probably into their 60s. In fact, 65 years earlier, an event took place in their history that would have marked them dramatically. There was a Roman general by the name of Pompey, and he was on a campaign against Israel. Israel was a bit stiff-necked, was the word you find in history. They were a little bit proud. And every once in a while, whatever invading army, 70 of them in the last 700 years, 70 invading armies in the last 700 years had come through and reminded Israel that they were nothing but a little peon state. And whatever hope they had of raising up big was, you know, might as well just get rid of that. And Pompey in, the AD, uh, in BC 65 came into Israel and did something unthinkable. He marched into the temple, the seat of all religious activity, and he pulled back the first curtain and he stepped into a large room, a room where only Jewish men were allowed. And this was a significant blasphemy. People were crying. Women were, were tearing their clothes. People were like falling on their face going, stop, stop. But Pompey wasn't done. He pulled back another curtain and he went into a smaller room called the Holy of Holies, a place where it was believed if God didn't give you order to go into, then God would literally strike you dead. And Pompey went into that place and he looked around and he walked back out alive and seemingly well. And because of that event in, in BC 65, droves and droves of young Israelite, young men and women turned away from their faith. And the promise that they had been holding on to for 2,000 years, given all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, appeared to them to be completely lost. An infidel, an unbeliever, a degenerate had made his way into the most holy place. And clearly Jupiter, the Roman God, is stronger than Yahweh, they believed. Many of them believed that nothing they held on to was of any importance whatsoever. It must have all been myth. It must have all been the faith of our parents. Only the faith of our parents and was no longer their faith. Their hope, their waiting, their answer that they received was there's nothing here to be had. And then the Bible tells us the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who through their 20s and 30s and 40s, as young kids, probably at least saw, at least heard what had happened, you know, in their parents' generation. And yet here they were faithful and blameless and upright. I have two big points for you today. The first one here is very simple. That there are people in this room who you're doing your best to follow God as you believe he's directing. 
and you're pushing through. And you may not, the words blameless and upright and you know, those words may not be words you use to describe yourself, but you know that your heart is for God and you're doing what you can. And when you fail, you make it right. When you wrong someone, you do your best to bring restitution and you're pushing through. Here's what I want you to know. If the Christmas story is about anything, it's about the fact that God sees it all. And there's no amount of faithfulness that you exhibit that goes unnoticed by him. He sees your faithfulness. And it's a big deal to him. Later on in the Bible, in the book of Acts, there's a man by the name of Cornelius. He's not even Jewish. He, he's a Gentile. And he prays to God. And he gives money to poor people to help them because he's a good man. And God visits him and says, Cornelius, your arm, your giving of money, and your prayers have come up before God. He has seen it. I want you to know this today. I don't know what you're waiting for. Maybe today you find yourself in a position of waiting on God for something. You're holding on to some hope and you're wondering if it's ever gonna come to pass. A hope about a relationship. A hope about a health issue. The stories in the Bible are replete with people just like you who waited and waited and waited and wondered and wondered and wondered. I can't promise you today what God's gonna do with your life exactly. But I can promise you this from this story and other stories and from explicit teaching in the writings of Paul as he like unpacks the meaning of the stories of the Bible, that every act of faithfulness on your part is noticed by your heavenly father and it matters to him. He takes note of it. It is not forgotten. You are not forgotten. You may feel because of the circumstances of your life that God is not noticing you, that your prayers are going unanswered. Can I let you in on a secret that doesn't get preached about a lot? The Bible talks about this thing called seasons. And it's normal for believers in Jesus to go through seasons of their life with God, their journey with God, where they don't feel the active presence of God in their life. It's like they don't have the emotional connection or they pray about something and the thing that they're asking God for doesn't happen. That's normal. It happens to every follower of Jesus eventually. And almost every one of them go through the same kind of dynamic and they wonder, God, are you listening? Do you hear me? Why am I even serving? Why do I believe? Why do I give? Is it making any practical difference whatsoever? Why don't I just go ahead and do the thing? Why don't I go ahead and commit the act? Why don't I go ahead and make the deal, even though I believe you or my integrity won't allow me to? God, is it even worth it? Look, if that's where you are today, here's something I want you to know. The Christmas story begins with your story. The story of people who are waiting, whose lives are righteous and good. I don't mean perfect. I mean leaning in with God. And yet the very desire of their heart isn't fully met. It hasn't happened. It hasn't clicked for them. What do you do when you're pining and waiting? One of the reasons why I never get tired of preaching Christmas sermons, a lot of my buddies in ministry, they do because they're like, you say the same thing over and over again, little baby in the manger, Jesus. 
no, this, this thing is rich with human experience. This couple here, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, they prayed, and now they're well advanced in years. Zechariah says, I'm old. A little bit later on, he's talking to an angel he meets in just a second. We'll read it. He says, I'm old. My wife is well along in years. It's a diplomatic way of saying, and she's old too, but he was, you know, a little bit more, you know, savvy in his marriage than I am. It might be why they stayed together so long. I don't know. He wouldn't quite call her old. My first point today, honestly, there isn't a single act of faithfulness of staying with God. Sometimes even when you don't necessarily feel him, or your prayers aren't being answered, especially answered the way you'd like them to be answered. There isn't a single part of your faithfulness in the middle of that that is overlooked by God. He sees it all, and it matters to him. It matters deeply to him. Once, the Bible says in verse 8, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. It's a normal deal. He's going to go light some candles. He's going to pray. He's chosen kind of accidentally by lot, by casting of lot, by gambling. They thought God would speak through that way. And, and, and he's chosen to go light the candles. And everybody else is outside praying. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel of the Lord said to him, do not be afraid. Fear not. It's the number one command when angels visit. And the reason is, is because when the angels visit, people are terrified. They're like, oh God, whoa, I'm scared to death. They, they fall down, they cry, they, they fall apart. And angels like, look, let's get something settled don't be afraid. I'm not here to hurt you. That's why when people today are like, I was dreaming and an angel visited and we had this pleasant little talk. I'm like, mm, I don't know. Because the angels in the Bible, when they showed up, people are like, ah! They start like, confessing things like, God, I'm sorry. I, you know, I know you know the thing. And I'm like, there's this holy fear of God that rests on people when God really visits them. And that's just a little side note. It's not really my, my point today. But anyway, the, the, angel, the angel shows up and he's like, don't be afraid, Zachariah. Now listen to this phrase. Your prayers have been heard. Through their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, they've prayed, they've prayed, they've prayed. And the angel says, your prayers have been heard. Now listen to these words. The first miracle of Christmas is happening right here. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you're to give him the name John. And he will be a, do you know who this John is, by the way? It will become John the baptizer, John the Baptist. All you who have Baptist background, this is like your grandfather here, all right? Um, John the baptizer. And he's gonna like prepare the way, that's a joke. He's gonna like, because none of us, like a lot of us don't have church backgrounds. You're like, that's nothing funny about that. And you're right. Most Christian jokes are not funny. They're just goofy. Um, John the baptizer, right? Right here. So anyway, he's gonna become the forerunner of Jesus. He's gonna make the way straight. He's gonna get people's hearts ready. And he's gonna call back throngs, like dozens and dozens and hundreds and thousands of these kids who turn their back on their faith. He's gonna call them back and he's gonna get their hearts ready to hear about Jesus. He'll be a joy and a delight. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. And he's never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his birth. Many of the people of Israel will bring back, will be brought back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of the power of Elijah, like this major prophet, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their kids. Oh, Christmas, there's always something about kids. 
in Christmas, this hope that's so tangible for them. They can't wait for it to get here. And as an adult, I start counting down the days, like how many days do I have left to get ready? I'm like, oh, could I just have another month? I mean, you know, could I just a few more weeks? And the kids are like, I want this thing now. There's something always Christmassy about kids. That's why for like us as a church, it's just a part of the DNA here. It's just a big deal for us. And we call older people like me to really give ourselves to this next generation because part of what God wants to do in the world is call the hearts of the father, the previous generations, back to their kids instead of just being about themselves. It's a big deal to God. And he'll go on in the spirit of Elijah and he'll call the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And he'll cause the disobedient to become wise and do the righteous thing to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. Then Zechariah says, here, here's where his savviness kicks in. He asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I'm Gabriel. I'm an angel of the Lord. I'm a messenger. And I stand in the presence of God. I see what God sees, he's saying. You, you can trust me. I'm like, you know, I'm a verified source. And I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you're gonna be silent and not be able to speak because you did not believe my words which will come true, and here's the second point I have for you. My words, which will come true, it says in Luke chapter one, verse 20, my words, which will come true, and here's the phrase, at the proper time. You mean the proper time for Zachariah and Elizabeth wasn't in their 20s? And it wasn't in their 30s? We're talking decades, folks. And it wasn't in their 40s, and it wasn't in their 50s? I mean, maybe, into their, maybe in their 70s, that's... For 700 years, God had been silent to the nation. 65 years earlier, the worst thing that could happen to them spiritually and corporately had happened. And they all wondered where God was. Do you mean that God knew back when they were first married that it would be at this point in time that this thing would happen? Yeah. At the proper time. Another way of rendering this is at the appointed time. At the time that God's already made the appointment. His full agenda will be revealed. One of the lessons of Christmas to all of us is not only that there is a hope that our faithfulness really matters to God, is that there is a hope that God has appointments for all of us. And it's a real hope. It means that in your life and in mine, at the appointed time, God's will gets worked. Now, can I be straight with you? Like the prophets of the Old Testament, God's time is not my time. I want it, and I want it now. In fact, I wanted it yesterday. And I can find myself pining away and wondering and doubting. And that's part of the story of Christmas as well. There were dozens of people around Elizabeth and Zechariah who wondered and who are going to wonder. They're going to go their whole life seeing John born and Jesus born, and they're going to wonder. But many people are going to have an appointed time kind of moment. And their soul is going to find its worth as they tap into God's story for their life. And I want to invite you to tap in today. I'm not saying I'm inviting you to get your prayer answered today. I can't promise that. But I can promise you this, that your heavenly father sees you, that he knows that your prayers are heard that your faithfulness matters and that he does have appointed times for you, for your kids, 
for your marriage, for your job, for your health. He does. I don't know what they are. Just like I don't know on Christmas Day when I'm sitting around the tree with my family and we're opening gifts. I don't know what's inside the package. All I know is somebody who loved me bought it for me, for my good and for my enjoyment. That's exactly what your heavenly father's gift to you is. Something from a heart that's good for you, loving towards you. And he has plan and he has purpose. And you have appointed time. So over the next few weeks, we're gonna discover this together as a congregation, fresh and new. And I bet if you've been around church at all, you've heard the stories a few times. I'm gonna ask you to come with minds alert and hearts open and let God speak to you through these old stories. And maybe you'll find that they're not just old stories. But in fact, God was at work then and he's at work now. And there are principles from the stories then that very much apply to now. Why don't you grab out your connect card? Let's take a few steps together as a congregation. Next step A for us today is one that's just close to our hearts. It's, I wanna accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior for the very first time. Hey, if that's you today, you can begin a relationship with God. Maybe today is your appointed time to do that. In a moment, we're gonna pray about it, but you can begin by checking the box as an act of your faith and saying, God, I, I just, I want my life to be connected to you. I wanna receive your forgiveness and make you the Lord of my life. Next step B is I need to get baptized. We're having a baptism here in just like a couple weeks. So check the box, we'll get in touch with you. You wanna be here for that Sunday. And the next step C, now listen to this. I will take intentional steps to not allow my comfort, which is kind of like the opposite of pining, to be the focus of my Christmas. I wanna help other people know their soul's worth. It's just an invitation for our church to make sure that it's not just about us this year. Like you may be going through big stuff. I'm gonna ask you to reach just a little outside and think about some others as well as you work through your stuff with God. Next step D. I'm gonna give to build lives to help the orphans in Kerala, India and the Smoky Mountain Children's Home. Just check the box. And at your pace, we'd love for that money to come in before our Eve Eve service or on the Christmas Eve Eve service so that we know exactly where we are and we can send that money to them and make the impact we wanna make as a congregation. And the next step E, I wanna invite someone to the Christmas Eve Eve service so they can hear, that's H-E-A-R, of a savior who came for them. So they can hear of a savior who came for them. We want other people to know that they have appointed times too. Let's pray about these things and then let's sing to our awesome God. Lord Jesus, you are a great God. And God, before we even get to the story of your birth, you show us in the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth that you're a God who sees it all. God, sometimes we get so consumed by what we feel and what we think and our sense of timing that we forget that you're the God who's above it all. We forget, Lord, that our faithfulness really matters to you. We forget, God, sometimes that you really do hear our prayer. And God, sometimes we forget that you have appointed times for us. Lord, this holiday season, I pray that we as a church me as an individual and my brothers and sisters in the room as followers of you. That God, our hearts would be drawn back home. Home to where you would have us be. Home, God, to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus. And whatever else is going on in our lives, Lord, that that would fall away. And you would take center stage. I pray it in the powerful and holy name of Jesus. 
Amen.